Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. My name is Michael Hidalgo, and I am thrilled that you have joined with us today. On this episode, we will speak about mending the divides. And this is a timely topic, isn't it? I mean, we live in a world today that seems so divided, so binary, so much us and them, black and white, pro and con. And the good news is that we don't actually have to live this way. And there are places and spaces in our world today that are proving so. And this is not a pipe dream. This is not blind idealism. It's not that everyone's finally agreeing on everything either. Uh, But it's birthed out of a courage to move toward conflict, to move toward division, to move toward brokenness, and even putting ourselves in the middle of violence. And so I couldn't be more thrilled to learn alongside of you, our listeners today, from our guest, John Huckins. John is the author, along with Jer Swigert, of the book titled Mending the Divides, Creative Love in a Conflicted World. John is the co-founding director of the Global Immersion Project, which is a training organization that helps individuals and communities in peacemaking. And rather than this only just come from theory and books, one of the things I've grown to appreciate about John is he speaks out of his lived experience. He's written for multiple outlets, including the USA Today, Red Letter Christians, Sojourners, and Relevant Magazine. He has other books titled Thin Places and Teaching Through the Art of Storytelling. He lives in sunny San Diego in the Golden Hill neighborhood with his wife and children. And John, welcome to the Changing Faith podcast. Yes, so good to be with you, my friend. This is fun stuff. And you are in an empty house because (laughs) you just moved yesterday. Speaking of lived experience, Michael, I'll tell you what, we are (laughs) in the lived moment right now. Yeah, I'm in an empty house that we departed from yesterday uh, as we have all of our our stuff. I, I was going to say crap. That's probably more uh, more appropriate in another house. But I, my Wi-Fi is still in the empty one. So here I am. And, and I love that you, in the middle of boxes and moving and chaos and kids, said, yep, let's do the Changing Faith podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so We're keeping it real. All my kids got off to preschool and school, and I said, hey, we can squeeze an hour in. Oh, nice. Well, thanks so much, man. Um, so I already mentioned your book that's, that's very timely, uh, you and Jer wrote, and I, I want to get to that and some of the content that's there. But can we begin just talking about what led you to do what you're doing? You're, you're living in intentional community there in San Diego. Mm-hmm. You're teaching everyday peacemaking. Uh, you're traveling the world, and you're sitting in hard places. And so there can be the thing where you encounter someone like you and think, oh, my goodness, this is like... It's like the Navy SEALs of the church. <laughs> so how did you how did you get there? Oh man, yeah, it was never um, certainly never something we intended to do, nor knew why we would do something like this. It was something that um, we experienced and kind of stumbled forward and leaned into. And for us, it doesn't feel like Navy SEALs. It just feels like following Jesus in everyday life on, on our streets. Um, but yeah, the journey towards it was was really uh, in short form worked. Um, at a couple different churches in Northern California and had a great experience, learned a ton, um, but was growing dissatisfied with where our vocation uh, connected with the, the structure of institutional church. And my, my wife and I actually had a sabbatical. We went on a, a global journey, really asking the question, what else does the kingdom of God look like outside of our tiny Western microcosm in California? And um, as a result, we met 
all kinds of amazing people, and we saw the kingdom of God manifesting itself in all kinds of unorthodox ways. And um, we connected with this little Christian intentional community in London, living in primarily a Muslim neighborhood, and the way they were living out their faith and mission uh, integrated seven days a week was super compelling to us. You know, the Quakers talk about the divine spark that we all inherit. And yes. when we are living our call, that spark actually grows into a flame. I feel like in that season, our, 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 our spark was flickering. And when we began to see that way of life, it just, it lit us up. And um, the sister community to that one in, in London was down here in San Diego. And so we made the move there. And at the same time, I was um, in seminary studying at Fuller, not because I wanted to like grow in my pastoral resume, but I just wanted to learn more about what Jesus, the historical Jesus had to say about our world. And and that led to another experience in the Middle East that I was able to study in Jerusalem. My wife was with me and um, she was six months pregnant with our first baby. We have four now. And uh, we had some interactions with people that we are taught not to see. Um, hmm. Specifically, and I, this is in the book, so you've read it, but there was one interaction with a gentleman who worked at the hotel we were staying at who we began to build some rapport with, found out his wife was also six months pregnant. And one evening on top of the, the rooftop um, of this hotel, I'm talking with him and his cadence begins to slow. And he looks at me somberly and says, John, why do your people think I'm a terrorist? I follow wow. Jesus just like you do. How can you pray for your meals every morning and look at all these holy sites when five minutes away, your sisters and brothers in Christ are experiencing daily occupation and oppression. And and you can imagine like my worldview blowing up and my heart breaking. And he says, my name is Milad and I'm a Christian Palestinian and I live in the West Bank. And, um, and I realized in that moment that my theology and my politic is so marbled into the reality of our world and the way it impacts friends like Milad. And I didn't have the theological tools or the capacity to understand that I was either going to be an instrument of peace in our world through my influence, or I could just perpetuate conflict and violence. And and not something I intentionally wanted to do, but if if I'm blind to some of these realities, I could I could do it. And so the rest of that trip, um, we would jump off the bus at the end of the day from looking at holy sites in Jericho and Masada and Bethlehem, and we would jump in a public bus and head into the West Bank and came to find out that this gentleman Milad and his wife Minar were working at a hotel so they could fund a nonprofit that they led in this village in the West Bank, Bethany, actually, ironically, the place of Lazarus Resurrection, where they are now living resurrection in some of the most compelling ways I've ever seen and experienced. And we saw that they were transforming that little neighborhood and that um, my contribution to our world was actually inhibiting their flourishing. It was contributing to the conflict. And so wow. that, that's, that was the on-ramp to like, oh my gosh, I've got to I've got to think, what is peace? How could I be a pastor who has theological training and not even have a theology, let alone a practice for peace or peacemaking? How have I disassociated it from the mission of God and God's restorative work in the world? Um, and yeah, and then kind of focused my graduate studies on, on peacemaking at that point and had some great mentors and then lived it out here locally in our neighborhood with our community. And you talk, I mean, the book is about this idea of peacemaking and right at the beginning, you tell a story about uh, one of your friends named Rick who asked you and Jer, what is peace? And uh, you talked about, you, you were actually out here in Colorado somewhere, sitting on a yep. porch, looking out over the vista, thinking, I, I don't know. So you talked about being silent when he asked you that question. And, and 
it yeah. seems now you have a better understanding of what peace is. And so can you share a little bit with us about how you've come to understand peace today? Yeah, that is, that is it. We were, that was near the inception of Global Immersion, our peacemaking training organization. And we wouldn't have even had the language for that at that point because we didn't have an understanding of peace. You know? And I think that's one of the reasons why it's still so hard for people to understand and it's seen as, as nebulous and it's stigmatized through, we could talk about all the cultural and or, theological yeah, stigma. Like the people in tie-dye? To a little bit. <laughs> totally, the tie-dyed shirts and Volkswagen buses and you think of the 60s and, <laughs> and, and we don't know why that is. We certainly don't have a, where our theological understanding of why that is, although we could go back to dispensationalism, we could talk about that again. Maybe that's your next question. But in, in the context of Rick's conversation, um, it was so clarifying for us to know that we didn't know what peace meant. And if we're going to talk about peace on a practical level, that we are called to be peacemakers, we have to have understanding of, of what it is and how it relates to following Jesus in our world. And so um, that really, that conversation launched us into a journey to figure out, like going back to scriptures, going back to our experience on the ground, um, like this, this, this connection of a um, a kind of academic theology, cerebral theology, and a lived theology that was growing from under our, our feet on our neighborhoods. And the way we understand it is that peace is the holistic repair of relationship, that ultimately God created all things whole in the state of shalom in Genesis. And in that moment, the peace creator in Genesis 3, when violence and, and, and people begin to move and take the, the fruit of power, um, and conflict enters our story, the peace creator moves to peacemaker. And then really from there on out, God's mission is, restor is restoration, to heal what was broken, to mend the divides. And, and ultimately what we trust in Jesus' cross and resurrection is that God waged a decisive peace um, and that it worked and that it's our role as a church to make that manifest in our world today. Like th th we don't have to wait for some second coming like things ought to progressively get worse and bloodier and then Christ returns and finally peace is realized. No, if the cross actually worked, the church's work is to, to narrate that cruciform life uh, and to be peacemakers who are participating in this larger restoration. So peace is a holistic repair relationship. And for us, we understand it in three spheres. So we have interpersonal work that has to be done with our spouses around our tables, our close friends, local injustices. What are the, what are the systems in our streets that are broken that we have to be called to move towards as peacemakers and and then internationally people like Milad how is my faith um, as a follower of Jesus who's committed to the work of peacemaking actually contributing to the flourishing of Milad rather than the continuing occupation and oppression of Milad hmm. and so you, you talk about Jesus being the ultimate peacemaker the one who brings this restoration and I I want to touch on that even a little bit further is Jesus did that by violence, allowing all violence to fall on him. And I think that's important mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons, because we live in a culture that clings to the myth of redemptive violence, that with enough violence, we will achieve peace, get all the bad people dead, exiled, jailed, however you want to say it, then we'll have mm -hmm. peace. And yet, mm -hmm. Jesus comes into the middle of a world which at that time was experiencing the greatest peace the world had ever known through Rome and through Augustus. And Augustus called himself the great peacemaker. So help us understand, yep. when we talk about what you're doing as we continue the conversation, you're, you're going into 
these places, not as the one to conquer, but I, I hear you even with Mila talking about you're going to places to understand, um, to mm-hmm. go with open hands, to surrender. And, and so how do you see that, that being the vehicle that brings about peace and not it being, as President Ronald Reagan said, peace through strength? That's right. Yeah, that's the Pax Romana. I mean, that's, that's you know, the Roman Empire 2.0 in language like that. And so the first part of my response will be a bit historical, theological, and the yeah. second really practical. Um, when we look at the life of Jesus, and specifically if we say that Jesus is the incarnation of God, that God is fully man and fully human, or Jesus is fully um, God and fully human, the way Jesus immerses into our broken and conflicted story is very perplexing. You know, there was yeah. a there was a messianic expectation that the Davidic king who would come and finally free Israel from the heavy yoke of the Roman Empire was going to conquer on the back of the white horse um, of military strength. And and Jesus upsets all of those expe- expectations. <laughs> and he does actually fulfill the messianic vocation, but in all the wrong kinds of ways. And so we have a messianic king who's expected to come with a sword, but instead instead comes with a cross. What does that tell us about the way of life that if we actually say Jesus is God and a normative ethic for living in even now in the 21st century, what are ways that we've actually set down the cross and picked up the sword to affirm our faith and religion? And we can see this played out through historic Christianity. You know, the first 300 years of of our faith as followers of Jesus, nonviolence was normative for discipleship. Ron Sider had a great exhaustive study on the first 300 years of the early church. And there are very few, if any examples where the the church actually fought violence with violence. Time and time and time and time again, they would lay down their life before taking someone else's. And again, this is what we see in the life and teachings of Jesus. And so what was it then with Constantine? Ironically, when Christianity becomes the, the religion of the empire, the, empire like, the Christians, again, they put down the cross and they pick up the sword. And when you marry following Jesus with sustaining em- empire's power, you are, going to, you are going to reframe our ethic as followers of Jesus in our world. And that's, that's kind of continued to move across, other than like, there's threads of Anabaptist tradition in, in, in church history that maintain that call to nonviolence, but right. <clears throat> but but today it's it's still a mess, and and so we we've inherited that militaristic understanding even of of mission and quote unquote evangelism, and what we found is no we we don't go to the places of brokenness and conflict in the posture of heroes to fix other people's problems as if we know what they're the answers to their problems are as white American Westerners. I'm speaking for myself here. We have to enter into conflict in the posture of learners, like seeking to understand rather than to be understood, to listen longer than feels comfortable. Like we've, when we go, what we found is that the most dynamic classroom to learn peacemaking is actual conflict. And the best instructors are those that practice peace in the middle of conflict. So how do we as Westerners in this empire go to places like Bethany and learn from Milad and Menar not to go fix their problems, but to have them help us fix ours. Yeah. Man. So you, you talk about, you've used the phrase already, peacemaking. And the phrase mm-hmm. that you use um, and that you've long used even before the book is everyday peacemaking. Um, yep. And what I've come to appreciate, what, what I see in the book, is that you make this 
really accessible. And I say that because the idea of being a peacemaker, it's, it's not a term that's routinely used by most people, at least yeah. in my experience. And so yeah. it can feel really overwhelming. Um, but what you do is you connect it to everyday conflict. Mm-hmm. And so can you help us understand when you even use that term peacemaking, what are some examples that you're seeing in San Diego, in your community, maybe even in your home, of mm. what this peacemaking looks like in the midst of everyday conflict? Totally. Yeah, well, first, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, um, to understand the work of peacemaking, peacemaking often is associated as this passive withdrawal from conflict or it, in, in, inevitably, this is oversimplifying it, but we've basically been given a paradigm for conflict. We either, it's the fight or flight mechanism. We either go in with tools to destroy or we run away from it because it's too scary. And we're understanding peacemaking and everyday peacemaking is actually moving towards conflict with tools to transform. John Paul Lederach describes peace, uh, describes conflict not as a problem to fix, but as an opportunity for transformation. So what we're trying to say is there's conflict all around us every single day in our marriages, on our streets, in our world. What if we don't understand conflict as this scary thing we run away from or this thing we destroy with military conquest, but it but move towards it with tools to transform? It's, it's, it's this... Um, you know, this goes back to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's moving, it, it's, it's being in the midst of violence and turning the other cheek and walking the extra mile. John Paul, or, uh, Glenn Stassen talks about um, moving towards conflict with transforming initiatives. There's a third way to engage conflict. So for us, tangibly, what that's looked like is, you know, when I, um, with, my, with my wife, we have four little kids, seven and under. It's insane. And we <laughs> are short circuit our communication all the time for the sake of just keeping this enterprise afloat. <laughs> and so what does it mean when I can begin to feel that resentment and bitterness grow under the surface and we get the kids off to school and I run to work and she run? Like, what does it mean to actually see her? Like, this is our first practice is to see the humanity and the dignity and the image of God in everyone. Um, and confront the fact that we've been taught to see some people and taught not to see others. Even in my own home, I can begin to demonize my spouse. Right. How am I seeing God in her and moving towards that conflict? Um, about a month ago, we had a white supremacist group that was coming to one of the most sacred uh, location, historical locations in San Diego. So on a local level, <clears throat> I'm part of a clergy network that is committed to stand in front of brokenness and violence in our city when it comes about. And we get word that um, this group is not only going to protest at this this historic park, it was a Latino, it's called Chicano Park. So it tells the story of Mexican American American heritage in San Diego, which is a huge deal because I'm standing in what used to be Mexico. Uh, the border crossed them in a lot of ways when, when U.S. bought the land from Spain, uh, um, from Mexico. And so when we're, when we're talking about that moment, we get a call, the clergy network gets a call from the police to say, hey, we need we need reinforcements. We need peacemakers to stand between mm-hmm. the native community who's being stepped on and this white supremacist group who's threatening violence and destruction. And so rather than, again, say, okay, well, let me, I can't make it because I need to keep working on my sermon that's coming up. <laughs> or there's a really important um, blog I need to write because that is so important. 
No, like everyday peacemakers see that moment as central to our witness in our church as followers of Jesus and our responsibility. So 20 of us clergy rally together and we go and stand quite physically between this white supremacist group and the local community. And the police are asking us really to be peacemakers, not to be apathetic, not to be passive, not to say that these are equal parties. We are calling out the injustice of white supremacy and the demon that it is. Um, but at the same time, we are moving towards conflict with tools to heal rather than to win or to destroy. And so, like, what are those areas of brokenness in our own space that we just run away from because it's too scary or too polarizing? And reality is, what happens when we go back to our churches and half of our congregation disagrees with what we did? Mm-hmm. Like, are, are you saying that we're racist or are you siding with, like, the cost is high, but that's what it means to be an everyday peacemaker around my table and on my streets, and then to understand our global reality and how we either contribute to working uh, for the flourishing of our global neighbors or to their ongoing oppression. And so that kind of life, though, that doesn't, that's not something you think your way into. Um, and I'm guessing yeah. that's something that takes internal work because, you, you know, you started with uh, navigating life with four young ones under the age of seven. <laughs> um, and just the ability to see your, see your wife, see your kids. But in some ways, mm-hmm. there's also the, the ability or the, the work you have to do to be able to see yourself and how yeah. you're blind and how you need to ask for healing. What, is that, what has that process been like for you? Because you, you talk in the book about healing and that, what is it, a quarter of the healings that Jesus does are blind people? Mm-hmm, yep. So can you talk about yeah, what so- was that process like for you to wake up to that, to begin to see yourself um, and in seeing yourself and being transformed, moving into someone with sight. That's right. Um, again, this is our, we talk about four practices of everyday peacemaking in the book. And again, the first one is to simply see. And it's really a confessional practice because, yeah, we have to confront that we, um, we choose to see certain people and realities and we choose not to see others based on our race and our theology and our politics and our geography. But it's confessional in that we, first and foremost, need to confront the stuff that we, um, those blind spots in our lives. And I think for me personally, (laughs) I've had to stumble over the blind spots and allow people, specifically minorities living in the majority world, to Mm -hmm. shine a flashlight on the dark recesses of my worldview and my soul to say, hey, John, there's some stuff you need to deal with. And like there is some inherited... um, there's inherited racism, there is inherited theological elitism, there is, like, you're more committed to um, to capitalism than you are to compassion. And and so wow. it's, a, it's an introspective journey that um, is a continual reminder that we are first and foremost the reconciled beloved. Like, I don't have to, um, I, I have to understand myself as one who's been reconciled to God and live in that space and allow my work as a reconciler, as an everyday peacemaker, to be an outpouring of it, or else you're just you're just really an angry activist, one-off project-oriented, um, you know, practitioner, which is not what we're talking about. Like, we don't need to yell louder about one issue on Facebook. We need a wholesale renovation and transformation of a way of life that yeah. moves us into and towards conflict in ourselves and in our world to heal. And so we would say, you know. 
and this is what Rohr is so great at, uh, Richard Rohr, like the contemplative activist is, mm -hmm. is critical. Like we have to have tools that move us deeper, um, that give us the kind of capacity to stay in this thing for the long haul. Because like I said, it's costly and I have never received more uh, vitriol and resistance towards me and our family and our way of life and our faith expression than when I began to take the work of peacemaking seriously. Wow. So if I thought this was just an add-on, it wouldn't work. Like, it's not worth it. It's not worth losing a reputation and very other tangible realities if I don't care about it and, and know it's part of my calling and identity. So yeah, the work inward for all of us um, is, a, is a long journey and a continuing one. Yeah. And, and for, for our listeners, I want to point out, as we talk about this, this podcast being about our next steps, what you just heard John talk about, that inward journey, is so important and there are some who almost resist that and the idea of, well, I'm supposed to care for others or I'm supposed to be committed to Jesus. But mm -hmm. there is that ability to deceive ourselves, to see ourselves as something other than what we really are. And if we are going to be called to, as Jesus says, if you don't pick up my cross, you're not my follower. Come die with me is the invitation. If we're not aware of the resistance within ourselves, we're not going to do that. And so as a next step, maybe... Maybe for you sometime this week, you take, you take some, an inventory of yourself. What is the resistance within you? Maybe you've never listened to those internal voices that, that push against some of the ideas you even hear John speaking about today. And so maybe it's a, a time to journal. Maybe it's asking people that you love and respect, how, what do you see in me? And embracing yourself for them to be honest and realizing that there's a lot of liberation mm -hmm when we come to a place where we're honest with ourselves so that we can continue to do the work of the kingdom. So with, uh, with that said, we're here today and not just today, but in this season, in this context, as I mentioned earlier, where it seems like our church, the church, the big C church, the, the country, our world, it just seems so saturated in division. Um, and at least for me in my short life to a greater degree than I've ever experienced it. And so what would you say to those who, with all honesty and without cynicism, would say to you, I, I'm really questioning whether or not peace is even possible? Hmm. I'd say it's a great question and one that really has to be asked. Um, if we're not asking that question, we're probably not taking it very seriously because um, so many of what of the signs <coughs> that we see um, across our headlines and on our smartphones tell us that the world is falling apart. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a huge temptation now more than ever, at least again, like you said, in my lifetime, to be paralyzed and throw our hands up and be like, we're screwed. This is out of control. And um, so I would say, right question to ask. And then um, once we ask that question and probably give some space for lament within the brokenness, I think that's actually the first Thing. And this is something we're learning from our, our friend, my friend Alejandra, who's Mexican, lives in Tijuana, talks about the, the lost art of lament in the Western world, specifically in Western yes. Christianity. So when you ask that question, allow yourself to weep and um, to scream and plead with God, why, why mm. is this happening? And when we navigate that journey well, we're going to end up asking a question, probably something like, well, what, how do we contribute to its healing? Like, it, we know that God... Um, is a God of restoration. So we can't apathetically 
let this continue to happen. We have to participate in the healing. And so I would say, um, one, we have to have eyes to see the restoration that actually is coming about in our world. There is a huge temptation to only profile the the high-level crap that's hitting the fan every single day, whether it's out of our White House to our international conflicts um, to the way we're interacting with our neighbors uh, that look different than us on our streets. And, and, and that's all the press it gets. But right below the surface, there is an endless number of people and stories and realities that are being healed and restored that we have to profile. Like, for example, when I, I just got back from the Middle East last week, leading a delegation into the conflict in Israel-Palestine, and we met with peacemaker after peacemaker after peacemaker, Jew, Christian, and Muslim, Israeli, and Palestinian, who are waging peace in some of the most compelling and provocative ways imaginable. And their work never meets the headlines. Right. Um, because we don't have the eyes to see it. So, like, when you walk with that neighbor through their addiction and into restoration, celebrate it as. Um, a mustard seed of the kingdom being made real in our midst. Like hmm. when we navigate that conflict with our spouse and actually see restoration and wholeness come about, celebrate it, mark it, um, talk to friends about it, learn from it. When um, we see the, for me down here on the border, when there are border wall prototypes coming up all around us right now, I have to have the eyes to see those that are working binationally to say we actually need to create space for friendship and for the not only the physical walls but the relational walls to break down so we can learn to just see the humanity and dignity and image of God in one another. And there's a huge movement around that. We're seeing restoration there. So I would say, one, we, we have to trust that our call and vocation is to join in God's work of restoration if we actually believe the cross and resurrection mean anything. And two, we have to have eyes to see it in our midst. So it's, it's the fuel that keeps us moving and functioning in a conflicted, broken world. And three, we've got to begin to live it. Because when we live it, we realize this is what we were called to be and participate in all along. And at that point, it's undeniable. undeniable. And, it, and, it, and that's what's going to keep us in the game for the long haul. Yeah, and you, you, you've talked a lot already about the idea of seeing. Um, mm-hmm. My favorite story in the book is about your friend Jason who threw himself into the middle of a street fight. Um, so I'd love for you just to tell that story. I was going re- to read it, but I'd rather have you just tell the story because it's, um, it seriously is unbelievable. Um, but then this idea of seeing, when you tell that story, there's a sense, or when I read it, of this is not a guy who's still trying to figure out what it means to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is someone who lives that way day in, day out. So can you even just talk a little bit about that journey of how do you begin to even open your eyes and then begin yeah. moving towards someone like Jason? Yeah. Well, the story, and then, and then I'll talk about how it becomes so embedded as like a natural reaction. Um, <clears throat> Jason Clark leads an organization in Dallas that works primarily with refugees resettling there. And in, in where he works is in the epicenter of where these refugees end up being resettled. And so you have, oftentimes we don't think of the nuance here, but you have tribes from all over the world that land in this little suburban context of Dallas, Texas. <laughs> and, and they're expected to live together in harmony, even though they've had tribal conflict for generations. 
And uh, not to mention the trauma and the PTSD they carry having gone through the journey of being a refugee and not, not, not. Right. Um, so we're, Jerry and I were out there, um, ironically, consulting with his team in the work of peacemaking, how to integrate this theology and practice for peace into their, their training programs for their volunteers and their staff. And um, so we had spent like eight hours in it. And we're driving back out to dinner afterwards, Jer and Jason and I. And he's like kind of pointing out what's going on in the city and where these folks live and, and, and different friends' houses. And then we take a turn and all of a sudden we see these two mobs kind of moving towards one another. And outset from each mob are, are two individuals who are carrying serious weapons, one a taser and one like these nunchuck kind of things. <laughs> and they are, they are about to brawl. And behind them are massive numbers who would have continued to jump into the the fray. And he literally, <coughs> excuse me, he literally slams on the brakes, pulls over to the, the side. Jared and I are like paralyzed watching all of this happen like it's a train wreck. Jason opens his door and runs straight to the center of that fight. Wow. And he goes to the two guys, puts himself physically between <clears throat> the nunchucks and the taser. And he knew him. Because he lives and works in that neighborhood and wasn't just the white hero coming in to solve their problems, yeah. he was actually someone who was trusted there. So he had equity to be able to run in the middle of that street fight. And again, this is like, okay, we can have the fight or flight and just like speed on by like many of us would be tempted to do, myself included in that moment. Um, or we can, we can grab our taser and go tase both those guys and solve the problem. Or you can be someone like Jason who literally moves right to the center of it and begins to call them by name hmm. and knows their stories enough to be able to defuse the conflict and is able to say like, hey guys, if you do this, you know how this is gonna end, right? You're gonna be put in prison. Your whole family is gonna have their process towards citizenship slowed or stopped. Like he begins to talk about the repercussions of, of a one minute fight in the livelihood of their whole family. And of course, like the, the temperatures drop and like the crowds kind of disperse and move their own way. And, what would happen? Like that's one dude in in Dallas who, in this to your second part of the question, he wasn't thinking. Oh, I need to see right now the the humanity and dignity image of God in these two guys, and now it's time for me to immerse. No, this is just what it means to follow Jesus in our world and have an eye that conflict again is an opportunity, not a problem. Um, and he moved towards it. So, like a lot of the times we talk about peacemaking, is it's like going to the gym. We have to build these muscles. This is not. This is not stuff we inherited, especially those of us in the Western Christian world. Um, we weren't, we didn't inherit a knee-jerk reaction to move towards conflict with actual tools to heal. This right. is something we have to grow in and steep in. And Jason had done the work and is continuing to do the work. And then, after the conflict in the following days and weeks, he's able to follow up with those guys and, and then invite them into this peacemaking work himself. And so now he's working with guys like that to become not only peacemakers, but peacemaking trainers among those refugee communities. Oh, so wow. those moments like that, it's not just Jason that pulls over, it's the local uh, refugee from some portion of Africa or the Middle East who's, who's diffusing. And so, yeah, it, it's a remarkable, remarkable deal. And, and it, that's important because so often people hear a story like Jason and think, I could never do that. I, I hear that story and think, yeah, like you said, I, I'm comfortable sitting in the car. Um, oh. But what I hear you saying is there's, there's a long journey here, and it's taking those first initial steps. 
And that's, right. um, what, that's one of the things that I love about how you, you conclude the book is you, in, you invite us just to begin, to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the many things I really appreciated about you and Jer and the way you wrote it was not only the humili- humility with which you approach it, but also a sense of helping us to see the peace that needs to be made in our world, in our immediate context. So can you, mm. can you talk just about a few things that we can do um, uh, just even as a next step? Like if you were sitting with one of our listeners and they said, well, what can I do today? Yeah. Um, and you would say, here's how you can be an everyday peacemaker and mend the divides today. What, what would be a few things you might say to people? Awesome. One, um, embrace the fact that it is a journey. And that's the whole point. You know, I think you're, you're describing as we, as we reflect on Jason's story. I mean, the disciples didn't get this. They struggled over and over and over again to the point where when Jesus is being arrested, Peter still cuts a dude's ear off. And Jesus is like, <laughs> Peter, have you, not, have you not seen or heard anything I've been doing? You don't get it. And, and this was still a muscle being developed in him. And it's going to be a muscle being developed in us. So to have grace on ourselves when we don't engage our neighbors, our spouses, or our politics well. That being said, some tangibles, I would say, especially going into the holiday season. I mean, we're going to be on the eve of, um, of Thanksgiving and Christmas here soon. Yes. And what does it mean to sit around your holiday table knowing that there's going to be political difference? We are in a space where the, everything is a binary. It's us and them. It's black and white. It's left and right. It's Republican. It's Democrat. What's it going to look like for you to sit around that table and listen longer than it feels comfortable hmm. with that uncle who you know could just set the tone for the whole, <laughs> the whole holiday with one sentence to listen longer than it feels comfortable to actually lead with curiosity rather than critique? Because our knee-jerk reaction in that moment is going to be to critique that perspective and say how wrong it is. What if your next question is a question of curiosity that, again, is fostering this commitment to understand rather than to be understood. We don't have to come into the conversation with our defenses up and our three bullet points in place. Let's release our fists for a second and and seek to understand. So I, I think tangibly coming into the Thanksgiving Christmas season, begin to, to build some questions and practices around how to engage the holiday table. Um, sorry, you're going to jump in on that? No, yeah. One of the things that uh, I found helpful is that when I'm, I love that you just said, listen longer than feels comfortable. That's, a, that's mm. fantastic. One of, the, um, one of the things that I've long done is if I know I'm going into a situation where there's going to be pronounced conflict is I'll make a plan. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you're going in ready for a fight, but it's not that I, I actually yep. don't want to fight. And what I found is when I don't have a plan is when I fight. So to yeah, go in yeah. and say, okay, if uncle so-and-so or if brother so-and-so or sister or dad or whoever or friends of the family are going to do this, um, what I found helpful is to actually have a plan and share it with somebody that you're yes. going to be with. I talked to my wife about this. Hey, how are we going to handle this? And it's not a – it does sound like you're you know, like wrapping up your hands, getting ready for a boxing match, but it's actually coming to a place of how do we listen um, That's right. How do we not return um, toxic barbs for toxic barbs? 
Um, yep. so I love that you use that as, a, as an easy next step, or not an easy next step, yep. but a next step, something to go and yep. practice. And if there's no intentionality behind it, what I found, that's when I usually crash and burn. If I go in just with my defenses up, totally. it gets really ugly really quick. Yep. Yeah, and on that, I think another tangible is when our defenses do come up, one, that's okay and natural. How we respond to them, like our next thing out of our mouth is really where the formational piece comes up. Mm-hmm. But when those defenses kick up, this goes back to the the C. Like, why is that coming up? Ask the question, why am I getting yes. defensive right now? What am I trying to protect? Where is it um, that I have a a need to be right. Okay. So maybe inside of me, like the dark spot that's getting a flashlight shown on it right now is I have this commitment to be right rather than to love. And mm. what's the journey I need to go on now? And, and so th- that's some of the confessional work that I think can parallel these holiday table conversations. Yes. Um, I think another tangible right now is, is the world is so politically divided. And for us as followers of Jesus, we have to continually remember that our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Our faith has to inform our citizenship, not the inverse. And and we're, we're messing that up royally right now. We are leading with political um, polarization and dividing rhetoric rather than just remembering and living out an allegiance to the kingdom. It's not that we're withdrawn from the political systems, but we have to first and foremost understand our identity and our allegiance as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so... What does that mean tangibly? It means diversify your news sources. Like, don't just get so stuck in our our narrative that we cannot understand the narrative of someone else. Go on your smartphone after this podcast and download the 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 app of the news source that you despise, and and actually see some of the headlines, see the narrative that's being told there, and ask questions. Why why is this the way this story is being framed? Like, yeah. embody it, and it's challenging, and it's uncomfortable, and you're going to disagree, and you might get angry. Good. That's part of our deal. And then be able to talk about those issues through the lens of the kingdom rather than just your political party. Man, dude, that's so helpful. So you just heard John share two really challenging next steps. And so, yeah, I think those are great, uh, great things for us. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast. The Global Immersion Project, that's your, your full-time job. That's my full-time job. Um, and where, where are you online? Can you even just give us a little bit about the Global Immersion Project? You bet. Yeah, so Global Immersion is a peacemaking training organization. So um, our work is to activate specifically the U.S. American church as an instrument of peace in our world. So our primary work is with Christian universities um, and with Christian churches. And so um, we have a variety of trainings, everything from taking these immersion trips into the center of global conflict, like I just led last week in the Middle East. We also have an immersion trip down here on the border in San Diego and Tijuana, where we learn from world-class peacemakers who help us understand how to live the everyday peacemaking way of life back in, in Denver and in San Diego and in Minneapolis and in Seattle, understanding the conflicts of our own context. So we have these immersion trips. We do one-day workshop, one workshops for churches, for executive teams. Um, we lecture at, at universities, and we have online courses that are offered as well and free webinars we've made um, available. So you check out our website, globalimmerse.org, and you can see all sorts of peacemaking resources, and, both in our archives and new stuff that's constantly coming out. Also on Facebook uh, and Twitter and Instagram with opportunities and ways to engage Wonderful. And if you're listening and you 
clicked on this podcast through either Instagram or Facebook, you can also look for the globalimmerse.org website on the post that I put there. How about you? If people want to find you, how do they do that? Yep. Through Global Immersion? JohnHuckins.net is my personal website where I write and blog and such and, um, and do speaking out of that as well. And then I have my own social media accounts, uh, John Huckins, H-U-C-K-I-N-S, first name J-O-N. Perfect. And John's book is titled Mending the Divides. And each chapter, by the way, concludes with several discussion questions, which means not only should you read it, but you should read it with others so that you can be in discussion with them. So, John, thank you for writing this. And thank you not just for writing it, but like truly giving your life to something that Mm. is so deeply important and so needed. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Michael. It's fun, man. Appreciate it. Yes. And that is all for today on the Changing Faith podcast. And my hope uh, for all of us is that we would consider how right now we can take one step from wherever we find ourselves in the pursuit of becoming everyday peacemakers. Maybe that's making a plan for the holidays. Maybe that's taking a inventory of our own selves. Maybe it's learning how to see someone that's difficult to see, but that we would continue to take our next step. So thanks again for joining with us. And as always, much love and peace be with you.